Hey, we're in week four of our series, Fail Forward. Um, but before we jump into today's text, we need to go back to the beginning, like, like way, way at the beginning. Um, Genesis chapter one, verse one, if you turn to your Bibles. I hope you guys didn't make lunch reservations. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just gonna, like, I'm gonna do a, like a Top Gun flyby. Like if you haven't seen Top Gun, if you haven't, just never mind. Um, in Genesis 1 and 2, very quick recap here, God creates everything needed for life. I don't know if you recognize that in the creation story of Genesis. What's really going on there is God is creating literally everything that we need to live life. Seasons and vegetation and water and, and all these wonderful things. Everything that we need for life, including life with God's very own self by way of the tree of life. Right? And everything is good. Everything is good and humans are very good. We say that again. Everything is good, and humans are very, very good. So God places them in this really, really good, this beautiful garden, where every decision only produces very good results. Would that be an amazing thing? Like, oh, man, what do I wear today? Well, every, anything I wear, it's going to be amazing, right? Well, what do I eat today? Well, anything I eat, it's just going to be amazing. We go to a restaurant, and my wife will eat something, and I'll order something, and I'll always like her dish. I won't like mine. I don't know why. But in heaven, I'll like my dish. It's like, this is amazing, all good results, right? Except for that one absolutely vital exception, right? We all know about the one exception where the decision would be life and death. It wouldn't just be gravy, right? It would be good or bad, right? Here it is. This is in Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, Now the Lord God had planted in the garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, there was a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, right, one simple choice with life and death consequences. All other choices, like I said, nothing but gravy, but you had to trust your heavenly father, right? You had to trust him that he was delivering the goods and that he wasn't holding back. So this is the lie that Satan tried to, well, he did, he told Adam and Eve, he's holding back. Continuing to verse 16, listen to this. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Only one decision has bad consequences. All the other decisions they make is nothing but good, nothing but good. So essentially, Adam is given a choice, and God immediately recognized <laughs> that alone, God, that Adam would surely mess up the instructions as simple as they were. So in the very, very next verse, the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone because he'll screw everything up. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so as I was saying, essentially Adam and Eve, right, they're being given a choice to trust God and live under his roof and his rules or instead to trust in themselves and to go it alone. Right? That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents. Tree of life represents life with God. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we're going to wing it on our own, thanks. We'll figure out what's good and bad. We'll make our own decisions. So a promised good life under God's rules and God's roof or the possibility of a better life, according to the serpent anyway, the possibility of an even better life out from under God's roof and God's rules. So the first thing to remember this morning, and this is, this is going to trail all the way through my message this morning, God wants to dwell with us. God wants to be with us. And as we're going to find out, most of us are really uncomfortable with that. <laughs> he wants to be with us, but we don't want him around us. We're scared. 
His holiness freaks us out just a little bit. Throughout history, the holiness of God has put people on edge just a little bit. But he wants to dwell with us because he loves us and he knows that to live otherwise leads to death. He's not selfish. He's not an egotistical guy. He's not a narcissist. He just knows for a fact that if you live life alone, it will lead to death. He's one of the things that we need to live, but we rejected him. We rejected him in Adam and Eve. But here's the second thing to keep in mind, a key point for our entire message series, actually, and I'm going to break it into three parts, but it's one point. Number one, failure and sin do not define the Christian life. If we start at chapter three, we can call ourselves and we can define ourselves as sinners. But if we start at chapter one, we can't define ourselves as sinners because God already defined us as very good. We just got broken. Our brokenness does not define us. Chapter three doesn't define us. Chapters one and two define us. We're not primarily sinners in God's eyes. We're his children that have some of us have run away, and he's, he's, right? he's, he's waiting for you to come home. We persevere and overcome despite failure and sin. We don't just endure, right? We don't just endure. Sin trips us up, but it does not rule us. And then finally, why? Why is all this possible? Because we depend on a God who is changing, who's transforming us from the inside out. The problem is we resist the way he wants to change us, right? God wants face time. If you dig back into the Old Testament, like once a year, the Jewish people had to show up at the temple, and what the priests would do, they would show them the bre this bread, the bread of the presence, so that they could see the face of God. God wants face time, and he, he made them. He, he told them, you will come and you will see my face at least once a year. <laughs> Some Christians have taken that into the modern age. I will go to church once a year, by golly, and... No, I'm sorry if you're that person. My bad. So mean sometimes. So God wants FaceTime, but as broken humans, we want to interface with God in at least four other ways. Let me just very quickly show you these four other ways that aren't really the way that God wants to do it, right? The first is life under God. Now, you may relate to, to God this way if you feel like you've never measured up, right? You feel like if you can just get your family and get yourself to obey God, Everything will be good. God will bless you, right? You try hard not to disobey. And you're scared to death of what will happen if you do disobey because God will then be angry and you will be punished. And you don't want to make God mad. So you just keep your head down and obey and obey and obey. Maybe you're living this kind of a life, life under, under God. Or maybe you operate above or over God. Right? Maybe you relate to God on the, the, the far other end of the spectrum. You don't believe there is a God. Or at least one that is interested in your kind of puny life, so you ignore him. Right? Greg Rochelle wrote a book called Christian Atheist. This is that camp. Right? We call ourselves Christians, but never had a word to say to God. Never hear from him, never speak to him. Christian Atheist. Or you believe that God has created the world in such a way that if you live a good life and do what's right and don't hurt others, God will bless you and, and, and you'll be happy, right? Bottom line, you don't need God himself. You just need his blessings and his stuff, right? This is life over God. But there's also life from God, Right? You continually ask God to bless your life and, you give, and, and, and to give you the things that you want. You pray all the time and you expect him to move. Right? When things get hard, you pray, but as soon as things return to normal, you kind of forget about them. Or you get upset when he doesn't give you what you want. Right? 
Again, you want God's blessings and you want his stuff, but you don't really want God himself. This is life from God. And then finally, the fourth way, life for God. Perhaps this is the, the approach of a lot of good Christians, right? You want your life to matter. You don't want to waste your life. You want to be radical, radical for God. So you fill your calendar and your life goals with things that you know are going to make a difference for God's kingdom, right? You're a servant of God, and you know that that's what's going to make you successful. But not once was your heart in it. It was pure duty. It's like the, the older son. Remember the story of the prodigal son, the younger son, right, ran off with everything. But the older son, no, I obey everything. I, and he was a very angry man. <laughs> you, you don't want to live life the way I'm defining it here, for God necessarily. Now, the question to you is, what if none of these are the ways that God intended for us to relate to him, right? What if we're supposed to relate to God in a radically different way, not for what he can do for us or even what we can do for him, but just solely for who he is? Now, understand that the passage I'm going to be looking at this morning, this passage is, is the words of Jesus recorded by John. Jesus is speaking to believers Right? They understand salvation. They understand the mission. But I think John, and, and through, you know, with the words of Jesus, John is trying to tell us, Jesus is trying to tell us that if you relate to him that mechanically, okay, you gave me my salvation, and now I'm on your mission. There's a certain separation, certain mechanicalness, right? I'm saved. Thank you for saving me. Now I will do your business. There was a, tra a business transaction that didn't involve my heart, Right? It just a little mechanical. And I think Jesus is concerned about this, and John is voicing this concern for us. Again, what if we're supposed to relate to God in a way different? Not for what He can do for us, not what we can do for Him, but again, for who He is. A guy named Sky Jethani, he's a, he's a comedian, Christian comedian. He writes, speaks. Um, he wrote a book called With. With. And this is the way that he calls the life that we should be living, is a life with God, not over, not under, not from, not for, but, but with God, right? That was his plan way back in the Garden of Eden, right? We just kind of looked at that. Eden was supposed to be the place where people knew God, where they lived with God, where they worked with God, where they took long strolls with God in the cool of the day. That was the goal, to live with God, not over, not under, not above, not, not any of those other ways. They had access to God's life through the tree of life, or they could do life their own way through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they chose poorly. <laughs> we know this. And ever since, we've been trying to recapture what we lost in the garden, access to God's own life, life with God, right? That was his goal all along. So regardless of sin entering the world, God continued with his plan, which is life with us. That's, that's the plan, life with us. Only now the plan had a twist. In addition to feeding physical death, Jesus would also have to deal with the sin and the spiritual death that had entered his father's world. Right now he's got more work to do. From John's gospel, this is God continuing with his plan. Right When the garden didn't pan out, this is God continuing with his plan. It was always there. It was always the plan. This isn't plan B. Understand that. This is God's plan all along to dwell with us. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
This verse tells us that God became flesh and dwelt among us, right? Emmanuel, God with us, not over us, not above us, not under us, not for us, not from us, but God with us. That, that's his name, Emmanuel. That's his title, Emmanuel. And that word for dwell is a Greek word for tabernacle, right? The tent where, where God dwells, right? The, the temple as they travel around in the wilderness, the tabernacle. So here's what happened. The garden temple has returned to the world, but this time in the form of flesh and blood, right? Jesus of Nazareth, the temple has returned. God has returned to being with his people. But once again, we rejected him. It's like, <laughs> come on, you guys. Listen to this. This is a few verses back. John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So once again, we're like, no, thank you. Stay at church, and we'll go at home, and right? But here's the deal. Many did reject the idea of living with us, of God living with us, right? The contrast between his goodness and our badness just, it, it freaked them out. It freaks us out. It just, it, it unwigs us. Right, to be in the holiness of God, his presence. But, but some listened and responded well. And I say that carefully, and I say it quite often, listening and responding well. Biblically, that's called obeying. That's literally what the word means. When you obey, you listened to somebody who's guiding you, and you responded well. That's obeying, right? Some listened and responded well, and they, and they came back home. Listen to this, 12, verses 13, 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You can come home now. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. So in the disciples' minds, catch this, as much as they could understand it anyway at this point, God was finally with them. God was finally with them. If, if, if they understood the words of Jesus correctly, God was finally with them. And, and they loved it with him, right? They loved it even after they figured out that it wasn't going to be all about being served. It was all about serving. The vast majority of them, what, 11 out of 12, they stuck with him. Now understand, the 12 that were with him all, I mean, there was like 100 some odd that were, they would kind of hang with him for a little while and then they would go back home and they were never always with him. But those 12 disciples, they were always with him. So there was a huge difference between those 12 and all the rest that ran off. Those that were with Jesus, it changed them. It just changed them. It transformed them. Just being with Jesus, not under him, not over him, not from him, not for him, but just being with him. When Jesus eventually goes and ascends into heaven, 11 of the 12, man, they stuck with it. And then some, because they had been with Jesus nonstop and it had rubbed off on them. So when Jesus starts talking about leaving them, they're understandably upset. Like, look, Jesus, right, I, we, we know we screwed up in the garden, right? We know that. We know as the nation of Israel we, you, we screwed up. You left, right? You didn't want to be roommates with us anymore. We didn't leave you. You left us. We were so horrible. We were horrible roommates, and you left us. I, we, Jesus, we know, but this time we obeyed. We obeyed this time. Why are you leaving when we finally got it right? So you understand their pain, and their anguish. They finally obeyed, 
and now Jesus is leaving again. But what they didn't understand was that he wasn't actually leaving them per se. Right? He was going to go to prepare this beautiful new home for all of God's children, and he was going to leave them his spirit as a guide to make sure that everybody made it back home. This is what Jesus does. Listen to this. This is from chapter 14 of John's Gospel. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is his response to their like, but we obeyed. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to a place there to prepare for you? I'm not sure that came out straight. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. A place to be with me. Right? There's no place like home. Right? We know this. Home sweet home. Home at last. Good to be home. Right? All these phrases, they reflect this, this incredibly deep need in humanity to have a place. And the world isn't that place. The world's too big, but a place where we can retreat to. Right? Kind of a, a, a safe place. Right? A place to rest. Dan picked a great song there. A place where we can find rest. A place to be yourself and still belong. See, we've got a world where people want to be themselves, but they know if they were themselves that they would not belong, so they put up a false front. A place to be yourself where you still belong and you still feel whole. A sanctuary where the chaotic world is banned. Right? We all need this. And, and home is that word that in many of our minds, again, some of us might not have grown up in a peaceful home, in a loving home, and, but my guess is if you were in that home that was hateful and filled with not love, there was a neighborhood home down the street, maybe, that you thought, I wish I lived there. So if you didn't have this home that, that is being described here and you can't relate to it, all I would ask you to do is I want you to dream of that home that you wished you had lived in because this is the home that's being described here. A sanctuary where the chaotic world is banned. In fact, the God, God instructed the Jews, right? If you were unclean in any way, bodily functions, deformity, any, anything like that, diseases, right? You were asked to leave town. You had to be outside the camp. Now, it sounds awfully mean, but God was simply trying to give them a lesson, a spiritual lesson. Rotten hearts can ruin paradise, Right? Bad apple will ruin the barrel. Yeah, there's a few other phrases going on there. I can't remember them all. But you get the idea. Right? God was trying to tell them, if you have something unclean in the camp, it will spoil the camp. So luckily, we don't send people outside the camp anymore because hopefully we've learned our lesson. It was an object lesson. We shouldn't be doing that anymore. An object lesson. Unclean hearts spoil the batch. Muslims, they have an incredible, they, they really latched onto this idea of sanctuary, right? In every Muslim home, there's this idea literally within the home, if it's not a physical garden in the midst of the home, literally it, with the description of the Eden, like four rivers, I mean the whole nine yards in a Muslim home because that is a sanctuary from a chaotic desert, hard world, a harsh world. And in fact, if they live in an apartment in a crowded city, they will literally, their carpets in their houses will be designed like the Garden of Eden so that they have this, this sanctuary, this, this place where they can be safe and they can feel whole, right? So Jesus addressed this desire with a promise. 
of a new place, a new home. And again, I, I, I want to really drill this. I think it has more to do with relation rather than location. Right? Because I, I understand this idea. I can take a whole bunch of you. If you had rotten hearts, I could take you to paradise. I guarantee you, you're going to ruin paradise, right, for yourself, or you're going to ruin it for everybody else. So I don't think that this is really talking about a place, because if you put a rotten place, a, heart, a rotten heart in a good place, it's going to ruin the good place. I think what's being talked about here is, is, is a relational place where Christ is preparing us, a place where we can feel safe, where we can feel safe with him. John makes this, I think, really, really clear in the very next chapter. Additionally, he makes clear that this place that he's talking about here is available here and now, not just there and then. Listen to this, the now but not yet idea. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. See, one of Israel's defining images was the vine. It adorned the front of the temple, and at times it's money. But if you read real closely, like nine times out of ten, as the Bible writers talk about Israel being the vine, it's not a good passage. It's a very negative passage, right? Israel's like the wild vine that refuses the gardener's touch. It refuses the gardener, allows him to cut off dead branches. It refuses the gardener to be allowed to prune. He just refuses the gardener. So Israel becomes this wild vine that doesn't produce fruit because it wasn't pruned back and it, the bed, dead branches weren't cut away. It became a fruitless, that's kind of the picture of Israel. Therefore Israel produced no fruit. But in, this, in the very next verse, Jesus is saying, but you disciples are different. Says this, listen to this, you were already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Right, the disciples, believers, right, They'd already accepted Jesus as their Messiah. They understood pretty much his mission and their mission. They had allowed God to cut back and prune, and they were beginning to produce spiritual fruit. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm not talking about you. You have remained with me. Here's his concern. When he leaves, will they remain with me? Remain in me, also I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Remain, it means abiding. A lot of your Bible translation might have abide. Settling down, being at home with is the idea, the Greek idea, the word there. The, the issue for Jesus is not whether or not they would remain on task, not whether they would remain on mission, you know, on point. The issue for Jesus was whether or not they would remain in him and that they would allow him to remain in them. The issue for Jesus was whether or not they would remain living life with him and not revert or turn to life over him, under him, from him, or for him. His concern was that they would remain with him, that he wouldn't become this mechanical something that you put in your dime and out pops the soda, right? All of these ways were dead ends. The issue for Jesus Humanity had never really liked living with God. Isn't that weird? Yeah, we think, oh, we can't wait, we can't wait, we can't wait, wait, wait. 
But history shows us that people are very, very uncomfortable in the presence of God, which, which, you know, you think of Isaiah, woe is me. You know, he's in the presence of God. I'm an unclean man, an unclean people, and, and oh, my gosh, I'm in so much trouble now. That, that's, that's our attitude. It has always been our attitude. It will probably always be our attitude. The question that comes to mind is, are you comfortable around Jesus? Just, just stop and think about it for a moment. Could you settle down and feel at home with Jesus hanging out on your couch? Think about it. He's there all the time. He's your new roommate. I, I, some of you guys have horrible roommate stories. I'm sorry, but some of you married him. <laughs> now, notice what I'm saying here is that at home with Jesus, not, not, at, not at church with Jesus. See, that's what we all prefer. It's like, I'll come to your house on Sunday, Jesus. I'll visit with you, I'll sit with you, we'll have coffee, we'll have a great time, and then I'm going to go home. You stay here. <laughs> this is your house, I have my house. This is kind of what we prefer, right? Or, or again, it's not the same as, as, as being at home when the pastor visits. That's dicey. My pastor visited me once, well, a few times, I'm standing there in the kitchen. My wife and I are yelling at each other. I think we're screaming at one of our daughters. And I turn around, and there's Pastor John in the, in the, in the kitchen mirror, like, looking at me. Oh, God's here. Oh, jeez. Right, and immediately, okay, Diane, be cool, be cool. Be, smile, smile. Come on, you can do it. Get the kids out of here, because I'm going to kill them. God's here. But I think that's the way we think about God, right? If he were to live, oh, man, i got to be on my best behavior. Oh, man, this is going to be miserable. I was talking about this my message with Pastor David, and we, we both thought of C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. And in that book, you got heaven and hell, hell and heaven, and every day a bus goes from hell to heaven. And every day the bus returns to hell, and you can stay in heaven if you want, but nobody wants to because they're holding on to something that they love more than being with Jesus. And they're not all bad stuff. They're just stuff. They love that stuff more than they love Jesus. So they hop on the bus at the end of the day and they go back to Greytown, which, which picture of hell where everybody refuses to love their neighbor so nobody has a neighbor. Every person lives all by themselves on a block of empty houses and they're the only ones in their house. It's the craziest, craziest book. Got to read it sometime. They chose not to live with Jesus. He's been inviting them since day one. I want to dwell with you. And we humans have said, you make me uncomfortable. See, our first thought is, you know, oh, there goes my sanctuary. <laughs> my mother-in-law's moving in with us. Here comes the judge. Right? We get all these thoughts when we think about Jesus living with us. On Sunday, we're on our best behavior, but at home, a totally different story. Seems to me that in John 14 and 15, these two chapters... Christ is implying that if we are in him, that we can be at home with him. We can, be at, we can feel at home with him. My little brother illustrate this idea. Rotten Robbie, and he was. He was off the charts. Um, his temper, everything was like extreme. Rotten Robbie, and he knows this. I preach about him a lot. Um, he would just go ballistic. He would just, just the craziest stuff, and he would go ballistic, and I would tell mom and dad, mom, dad, you need to have him checked, right? You need to see, he needs to see a doctor because 
he's nuts. And they would kind of get mad at me, but they would let it slide. They, they, golly, I don't know what, they allowed it. And what I come to figure out later on is they allowed it because they knew that in a loving, forgiving, and gracious environment that Robbie would eventually turn out okay, and he did. He's a pretty amazing guy as an adult. I think that's the way God looks at it and the way we need to look at it. Robbie was horrible around the house. He was terror, but I always heard rumors that at school he was the nicest guy in the world. I'm like, what is going on? And Robbie finally told me, he says, at home I can let my hair down. I got to be good when I'm out in public, but at home I can be myself, and nobody yells at me, and I don't get in trouble. Well, he kind of did, but my mom and dad were really gracious with him. They were forgiving. They called it, you know, when it was bad, but they were forgiving. They were loving parents, and I don't think Robbie ever dreamed, I got to get out of this house. I got to get out of these rules. Like the rest of brothers and sisters, we, we all loved living at home. It was great. It was, there was no worries there. Again, it seemed that they figured out that in a loving and forgiving environment, Robbie would one day be normal. And I think that's what Christ is trying to tell us. If you just hang out with me, right? Here's Proverbs 14.4. Here's the way he puts it. Where there are no oxen, the manger is empty. But from the strength of an ox come abundant harvest. Like, Pastor Jerry, that's a crazy passage. What's all that mean? Right? It's not to say that kids are identical to oxen, but what it is to say is whatever you have life, you have the potential for a mess. Oxen are messy, right? If you got oxen, the house is going to be a mess, right? It's just going to be a mess. The home is made up of people, and people are messy. The power of home is best illustrated by what I, what, what I think Andy Stanley is the first time I heard it, but it's, it's an idea you've all heard of the proximity principle. Right? Proximity, when, if you're around somebody, you tend to become like them. When you hang out with somebody, particularly if you like them, you get along with them, you begin to mirror them. It just happens. It's not like they're telling you, hey, you need to be more like me. You need to change your hair. You need to stop doing that. It's just, if they're horrible people, guess what? You slowly become a horrible person. But if they're really, really wonderful people, and again, they don't tell you be bad, be good. You just, just by hanging out with them, you begin to emulate them. You begin to do the things that they do, right? You find out that, wow, that was fun serving somebody. That was amazing. I felt great. And again, there's no instruction going on. It's just the proximity, hanging out with somebody. If you hang out with somebody, you become like them. Look at some people's pets. It's a little scary. <laughs> like, how did that happen? You become like the people that you hang out with most. Same principle applies to Jesus, right? We fear life with Jesus because of our unworthy imperfections, not realizing that in life with Jesus, we are transformed into roommates worthy of Jesus. Again, not because he's pointing his finger at us, just because he is so loving and so gracious and so forgiving and so full of mercy where you just like, I want to hang out with him all day. And pretty soon, you're doing the same things because it's such an amazing thing, and you see the results, and you see how amazing it is for other people, and you're like, I would like to do that. I would like to be a blessing for other people, and you begin to do the things that Jesus does. Again, not because he's being the judge, because he's being a loving roommate, a great person to be around, to emulate. To be a Christian in the world is to be under construction. We just got to accept that. 
In the world of construction, rarely does everything go right. right? Some of you all know that, whether the construction is a picnic bench or a house. Nothing goes right. You think it's going to take an hour, it's going to take six. Rain delays, cost problems, unforeseen issues, they all need to be addressed. And again, it's the same as a believer. Listen to this, chapter 15, verse 5. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen, things will go wrong in life. And there's no playbook for everything in life. The thing we got to remember is who to turn to in all things, the one from whom all life flows. Independence Day is tomorrow. And I want to I want to challenge you. Declare your independence from the tyranny of life under, over, from, and for God. And this Sunday, this, this very day, I want to challenge you to make a decision, accept Jesus' invitation to live life with him, to dwell, to abide, to remain, to room, to room with God. As we share communion, that's what communion represents. It represents life with God. Right? These elements, the body and blood of Christ, they represent sacrificial love and forgiveness and mercy and grace. That's what life with God is, is all about. The blood poured out and his broken body, they represent a place to rest. He's offering you a place to rest today, a place to be yourself and still belong, to both feel and be whole again. As we share this at the very end, I always, I'll read from 1 Corinthians. When you do this, you proclaim his death. You proclaim these things that we're talking about here today, that Christ wants you to come home. He's inviting you to come home. Through him, you can come back home. But it can only happen through his broken body and his spilled blood. So if you are in this room or you're listening to me at home and you've been wanting to come home, but you felt like God was or your dad or whatever, they weren't going to accept you because you did whatever. You need to know that your heavenly father, open arms, he's been watching for you. He's had his hand up against the sun. He's waiting for you to come home. But it has to be through his son. It's time to come home. Understand something. What you just participated in, Christ did. And you understand that he did. And what, are we, what, what Christ is calling us to do is to do the same thing. Not necessarily to spill our blood or have our bodies broken, but for the sake of the world, to have our blood poured out and to have our bodies broken. People want to come home and y'all know the, the address now. And so you need to let people know how to come home. Yeah, you tell them about Jesus, but you tell them about Jesus, the fact that Jesus will lead you home, and you tell them how Jesus leads them home. Bow your heads, Father. Thank you so much for your word, for your son. 
and for your Holy Spirit. Father, in all ways, you are a good Father and, and you have taken care of things that we could not take care of. And all we have to do is walk into it and not be afraid of it. Father, we have this crazy idea that you're gonna, you're gonna, gonna spank us when we get home, but that's not what your word says. You want to hug us. You want to love us into righteousness. So Father, live with us. We invite you into our homes right now. Father, if, again, if you haven't been invited into somebody's home, this morning, I think maybe they're inviting you in. They want you to make your home with them. Father, they're scared to death of you. So by the power of your spirit, Father, give them your peace that you are nobody to be afraid of. You are not a horrible judge. You are a loving, a good father. Father, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for what you do for us too, but thank you for who you are and that you made us to be like you. And you gave us the best example in your son, Jesus. So Father, thank you, thank you, and thank you. In your son's name I pray, amen.